Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Mary McDougall and I'm delighted to have the man, the legend, the IC's very own resident economist, Chris Dillo, back on the podcast. Chris, thanks for coming on. How are you? <laughs> I'm fine. I'm fine. First time I've ever been called a legend and perhaps the last. That's not true, actually. <laughs> What's the weather been like in Rutland over Stormsgate? It's been pretty bad, but there's no damage that I've heard of. Uh, unusually. <laughs> Now, you write an enormous amount for the IC on economics markets, and you also comment in our portfolio clinic just about every week. To kick us off, as investors, what are the most important economic indicators that we should follow? I think the most important is simply the shape of the yield curve. Um, If you want to know whether we're heading for a recession or not, the yield curve is pretty much the only thing you should look at. If 10-year bond yields are above two-year yields or or three-month rates or the Fed funds rate, uh, that is, if we have an upward slope in the yield curve, it predicts economic growth and therefore rising equity prices and, and rising house prices. The moment the yield curve inverts, it's a good indicator of the probability of recession and a good indicator of of falling equity prices. That's true in both the UK and in the US. And right now, um, the yield curve is, is still upward sloping, although it has flattened thanks to rising two year rates. And that's why I think we should have some reason for optimism uh, for equity mass. And we've had a lot of fuss in the last few days about the sell-off in um, in US bond markets, and particularly at the two-year end. But in a sense, that's good news for equity investors because it suggests that people are confident that the US economy is strong enough to take higher short-term interest rates. And that, in turn, is an environment in which equities can do well. Well, that sounds quite encouraging. But um, the other thing that's top of the news at the moment is inflation. And we spoke a bit about inflation when we were last on the pod, when you last came on the podcast in September. I think it's now um, higher than we might have foreseen before. It's 5.5% in the UK and 7% in the US. Has your position on inflation changed? Or do you still think it's going to come down naturally? I think it is, yes. I mean, it does look as if the spike in inflation is going to be a little higher than than everybody previously expected. Um, But nobody was saying that inflation will fall at the start of this year. The likely chance it's going to start falling would be from about the spring onwards, because we've still got another round of utility price hikes coming in April. But after then, some big price increases that we saw last year should start dropping out of the annual comparison. So, so simple maths tells us that inflation should should be coming down um, for, for, from the spring onwards. What we what we don't know is how quickly it will come down. Um, but my hunch is that some of the inflation we're seeing is due to 
temporary factors, such as, for example, the shortage of computer chips for new cars that has led to an explosion in the price of used cars. And also a, a more general factor is that around the world, um, the, the COVID uh, recession led to a mismatch between supply and demand such that supply chains have got to get themselves sorted out and that th there are some unemployed workers who are mismatched for the job vacancies that currently exist. Those mismatches are quite common in the early phases of a recovery and they usually get resolved through, through the normal operation of market forces gradually and, and that should bring, it, bring inflation down on top of the mathematical so, so yes, infl inflation should come down from, from the spring, but we're not we're not sure how how much. Yeah, I guess um, wages are the important part here because once wages go up, it's hard to bring them down again. The, real wages um, are down year on year, but I think uh, the Times reported that they're up on pre-pandemic levels. W what's your view on wages at the moment? Well, if you look at the ONS data, we've got we've got two different data sources here. One is um, median monthly pay, which comes from PAYE, and this this shows that wages in the last month have risen slightly more than the rate of inflation. But if you look at average weekly earnings, the the, the rate of growth here is under four percent, which is under the rate of inflation. Uh, and which suggests that real wages are are being squeezed. So, but it's very difficult to see in this data an explosion in wage growth, and that there is so far no evidence of a wage price spiral. Yeah, well, that's that's encouraging to hear. And do you think that um, in the long term we have to go back to positive real rates? You mentioned the yield curve earlier, but um, real rates are quite quite negative at the moment. And I guess governments like it because it depreciates their debt. Um, but do you think there's a point where it has to return? I'm in two minds about this, I'm afraid. Um, on the one hand, if a central bank wants to get inflation down, then it has to raise not just the nominal interest rate but the real interest rate because it's real interest rates that squeeze economic activity uh, and squeeze out inflation so that argues for uh, real rates um, rising and possibly becoming positive but on the other hand we've got to remember that we've had 25 years of a trend decline in real interest rates and that's the result of some long-term Forces. The weights to which economists um, debate, but it's not at all obvious to me that um, all of those long-term forces making for low and negative real interest rates ha ha have permanently disappeared. So it could be that what we see is a blip upwards in real interest rates as central banks fight, uh, fight uh, inflation. But, but whether that means a permanent return um, to the real interest rates that we saw in, in the 80s and 90s it is far from obvious. Do you think it matters? Do you think we can 
carry on with negative real rates indefinitely? Well, we have done for for many years. You know, I mean, the big fact about the world economy um, over the last couple of decades has been a slowdown in in trend economic growth, uh, pretty much around the Western world, and slower economic growth means lower real interest rates. And real interest rates in, that, in this sense are a symptom of a much bigger problem. It's that low trend rate of growth that is the really nasty thing and the thing we should, we should, we should worry about. You know, low real interest rates are, uh, are, the, are the result of that and, and not in themselves the problem. Yeah, we need to, to work on productivity. Oh, yes, productivity is everything. Do you, do you hold out much hope for productivity? Not, not really. No, it's difficult to see how it's going, how it's going to significantly improve. And there's, there's nothing in the uh, effects of the pandemic to suggest that we're going to, it, it, it's going to lead to an upsurge in productivity growth. I mean, the data are, are, are somewhat skewed by the by, by the pandemic and by um, the, the, the the bounce back from it. But it's very difficult to see any underlying improvements in productivity growth. When you last came on the podcast, you said that you'd never understood the idea that market timing doesn't work um, and that you could equally argue that market timing works and that stock picking doesn't. And we talked about some lead indicators. One was the dividend yield of the FTSE All Share. And you, you said that was a great indicator of medium term returns. What What's it telling us now? And might the pandemic have messed things up with so many companies cutting their dividends? And Well, at the moment, the dividend yield is just on the All Share Index is just under 3%, which is below most measures of its long-term average. And that's pointed to slightly below average returns over the next one, three, five years. The relationship between the dividend yield and subsequent returns tends to be stronger the longer the time horizon so it's an okay-ish predictor for 12 months better for three better for four better for five uh, and and so on now the problem is that this indicator um did mislead us last year in that the dividend yield was low and yet the market did better than that would suggest now it's hard to say that that's simply the result of companies having cut their dividends because the low dividend yield was a sign that investors expected those dividends to be restored. You know, expected correctly. You know, so the dividend restoration should have been in the price and yet the market did better um, than expected, um, allowing for that. I honestly don't know whether the relationship has broken down because of the pandemic or whether it's just normal noise around um, the fact that the dividend yield is not always a perfect uh, predictor of, of annual returns. Yeah, I guess it was extremely unusual circumstances as well. Another, another indicator that you mentioned was global share prices to global money stock. We've we've seen a huge um, increase in global money stock. How's this relationship looking at the moment relative to history? Right now, it's looking slightly 
more encouraging for equity investors than it was a few months ago, simply by virtue of the fact that global share prices ha have come down so far this year. Now, it's still the case that the money to price ratio is below its long-term trend adjusted average, which, which is a slightly bearish sign, but it's not as bearish as it once was. And in fact, you could see the decline in global share prices this year has been consistent with the fact that the money price ratio has in the past um, predicted um, predicted returns. Does it does it work for the UK or does that have to be looking globally? Well, it, it seems to be a global thing. Um, I've, I've, it's a long time since I've found any meaningful link between UK monetary measures and UK equity returns, which I, which I think is reasonable because um, it's, it's global investors who drive the market and it's global investors who are thinking how to allocate their portfolios between money, money uh, and, 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 and equities. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. And and the other the other indicator was the ratio of retail sales to the all share index. Um, how is this looking at the moment? Well, it's looking slightly positive, and the ratio of retail sales based on last week's figures is ever so slightly above its long term average uh, relative to the all share index, and that's really interesting because it suggests that for all the talk of a cost of living crisis and falling real wages, consumers in aggregate aren't hunkering down in anticipation of, 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 of a sharp squeeze. And it suggests that they're looking through this year's cost of living squeeze um, towards better times that thereafter. And this is really encouraging for equity investors because there's a tremendously good correlation between the ratio of retail sales to the all share index and subsequent equity returns. The, the idea here is simple, that our consumer spending is forward looking. If we, if we expect big pay rises, we're gonna spend more than if we expect to get the sack. So if consumers are spending a lot, that's a sign that consumers are optimistic uh, about their, their economic future. And that optimism is very often correct. If you take any individual at random, you know, he's going he's gonna to be wrong, he's going to be irrational, mistaken. Right? But if you take us all together, millions of us, all these irrationalities and errors have in the past very often cancelled each, each other out. So for everyone who's wrongly optimistic, someone else is wrongly pessimistic. The result is that there's a wisdom in crowds and this wisdom of crowds means that retail sales do predict equity returns. And right now, they're actually saying that things aren't going to be too bad. You know, they're pointing to around average returns over the next three years on the all share index. And I stress that three years because there's much more predictability in longer term returns than there's in the short term. In the short term, you can think of share price moves as being largely random. In the longer term, there tends to be some predictability, or at least there has been in the past. Yeah, that's a wisdom of crowds unless they're stock market investors. <laughs> that's actually a very awkward, awkward point that it's something people don't like to admit that 
it could be that consumers in aggregate have more useful information about the future than, than, than do fund managers and certainly than the economists. The economists cannot predict recessions. You know, this is this is a proven fact by Prakash Langani at the IMF. But it does seem that consumers in aggregate have some ability to do so. That's really interesting. How does the retail, so you said the retail data that came out last week, what um, time period is that over? How much time lag is there in what's published? Well, those figures referred to January, which showed a decent increase in sales volumes in the month you know, on, on account of December sales having been depressed by COVID. But I'm looking at the ratio of nominal retail sales to the all share index going back over um, the period since 1996 when current retail sales data began. And, and based on, on that long run of data, the ratio of nominal sales to the nominal all share index is now ever so slightly above average. So quite encouraging. There's lots of, um, you get the impression from reading the press, like people are really quite worried about the cost of living crisis. Yeah, yes, the, the experts are worried, and they're right to be worried because come April, the rise in utility prices and in national insurance contributions are going to be a big hit, even to people on decent incomes. You know, But what seems to be the case is that consumers aren't yet hunkering down in anticipation of that. And maybe that's because they're, they're, they're looking through it and that they're anticipating falling inflation Late, later in the year and 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 into and into next year. Do people really think that far ahead, though? Well, each individual uh, doesn't necessarily do so. And even if he did look ahead, he wouldn't really know what was going on because none, none of us can foretell the future. It, it's a it's a wisdom of crowds effect. And but if you, if you simply look at the history, the ratio of retail sales to the all share index has been a better predictor uh, of equity returns than the dividend yield. And the dividend yield has been a decent predictor. It is astonishing how, how good the correlation is. Now, of course, it, of course the ratio might have, might have broken down, you know, uh, but history suggests that it hasn't yet. It, you know, we should take it seriously. I mean, right now, it's not pointing to any, any great, you know, um, economic boom, but nor is it all pointing to a crisis, pointing to about average conditions and average returns for the all-share index. You've been studying this for 30, 35 years. Are there any um, indicators that you followed closely that have broken down over your career? Yes. Um, one is the non-US investors' purchases of US shares. That used to be the case that foreign buying of US shares was a very nice predictor of global equity returns, such that in, in the year 2000, foreigners piled into the US market and equities subsequently fell. They piled in again in 2006, 2007, the market subsequently crashed. You know, they that they they were net sellers in two thousand and nine. Market subsequently recovered. Foreign buying was for years fantastic predictor 
but it broke down two or three years ago because we saw some quite big foreign buy-in just before the pandemic and uh, and yet and and during the pandemic and yet the market continued to rise you know so, yeah. so that that's one yeah. indicator that has broken down yeah you, you wrote um an interesting piece recently or i think it might have been one of your comments on the portfolio clinic saying that we shouldn't regard a share price as the present value of future cash flows. A share price is the probability weighted average of its payoffs in all possible future states of the world, ranging from disaster through to a boom. Um, like, do you think investors can or should forecast corporate growth? No. We've got quite a lot of academic evidence that corporate growth is in fact largely unpredictable. There was a great survey of this a few years ago by, by a chap called Alex Code, who looked at all the evidence uh, that, that, that we have. And you just can't predict medium-term corporate growth. Uh, it, 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 it does seem to have a very large random element. And I think people pay too much attention um, to medium-term earnings forecasts. And, and we, we've seen that um, in the last few weeks. We've seen large falls in, in the price of stocks like Peloton and, and Meta uh, and Netflix as earnings fell short of expectations. Now, if people had good forecasts for medium-term growth, you wouldn't see such a huge share price response. To, to, to such earnings disappointments. You wouldn't see such earnings disappointments in the first place, but what you'd also see is a muted reaction as people will think, hey, I know where, where earnings are going. This is just a temporary blip. They'll be, they'll be back on track. Doesn't seem to have happened. Uh, and that's a reminder that we've got to be very humble about our ability to predict the future. Economists can't forecast recessions. Maybe investors can't forecast medium-term earnings growth either. We're all in the same boat. So how can private investors assess valuations? Well, in a sense, valuations themselves are really useful, not so much because they're based on future earnings expectations, but because of what they tell us about the present. And if share prices are high relative to dividends, it's a clue that maybe share prices are taking in too much good news and not enough bad, and that they're overpriced. You can say that a, a, a stock or, or a whole index is overpriced without having to think about longer-term earnings projections, you know, which are which are very very weak. And do you think that's on the earnings side, but on the sort of economic side? You, you wrote a piece saying that only unexpected growth boosts share prices, um, which I think was referring to economies. So in that case, is there any point in studying economic growth? Like a lot of people say buy Asia because of the rise of the middle classes. Um, but, you know, if that's already known, is that in the share prices already? Yeah, well, this is what history tells us. Um, history tells us that the correlation across countries between economic growth and equity returns is pretty much non-existent. 
And this has been, been the case in recent years. In the last 10 years, the Chinese economy has grown much better than the Eurozone economy. But if you look at just the stock market returns, you know, there's, there's very many European markets have delivered far better returns than, than China. You know, and it is the case that some things do get discounted. And one of these is longer term growth expectations. Yeah. What, what's and your... those maybe well maybe wildly wrong, but 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 they're in the price. And it is only the surprises that that, that move prices. Yeah, that makes sense. What's your um what's your thoughts on the investment case? for emerging markets at the moment and emerging markets there are lots of different places but do you think there's there are interesting opportunities where do you think the most interesting opportunities might be i'm not sure there are um i i'm of that sort of generation whose uh, attitudes here were were scarred or formed by the mid 90s now back in 94 95 Everyone was expecting the Fed to raise interest rates because interest rates were very low at the time. Everybody was correct to foresee rising interest rates. And even though that rise in interest rates was widely expected, emerging markets did badly um, as rates rose. And I worry that a similar thing might, might happen again. History warns us that rising US interest rates and especially rises in the US dollar uh, are not a terribly good background for, for, for emerging markets. Right? So near term, I'm not, I'm not terribly keen. Longer term, I don't think the idea that economic growth um, is going to support great returns on emerging markets. I would simply regard them as a risk asset in an environment when investors want to take on more risk, you know, when the economy is doing well, emerging markets do better. In an, in an environment where investors don't want risk, emerging markets do, do worse. Yeah, that makes sense. Where do you think are good places for investors to be at the moment? Which asset classes and markets? Well. If you take the view that the future is largely unpredictable, then we should not be answering that question. Um, what matters is diversification across asset classes. Recent history, by which I mean the last 20 odd years to 30 years, tells us that a basket of, of equities, government bonds, gold, cash, and, and foreign currency, if you're a UK based investor, has delivered surprisingly good risk-adjusted returns. What matters, I think, is, is that diversification rather than trying to, to, to pick particular assets for the future. Some people might be able to do that. They're few and far between, uh, but I can't. As, what, as, as Charlie Munger says, you've got to know the edge of your competence. And for me personally, the edge of my competence comes a lot nearer than being able to predict particular asset returns. But but would you recommend sort of tilting depending on different market environments? Um, well, 
the lead indicators we have for equity returns are either slightly positive, as in the yield curve and the ratio of retail sales to the all share index, or they're slightly negative, you know, in the global price to money ratio and, and the dividend yield. So for equities, things aren't looking catastrophically bad. And given that average has been quite good for equities, I think that, I think there's still a case for having a portfolio well tilted towards equities. But being well tilted towards equities is, is a lot short of being 100 percent in. What is the percent for well tilted? For me personally, at the moment, it's about 50 percent in equities. Now, I'm, I'm on the cautious side relative to many investors, but I, I would be alarmed if um, somebody who was reasonably cautious had a much greater equity rating than that. I won't be so rude as to ask how old you are, but I guess that's an important part of of um, what your allocation might be. <laughs> to be honest, it's not. Oh, interesting. I, 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 am, I have never been convinced by this idea that older people should own fewer equities than younger ones. Um, no. No, age, for most people, age doesn't matter. The reason why some older people should own fewer equities is that if you're retired then there's one big asset that you do not possess anymore namely your human capital your ability to earn a living mm -hmm. and whether you have a lot of human capital or not um, can in some circumstances affect your equity weightings but it, but it's ambiguous if you're in a safe job for example um, then you can afford to take on more equ equity risk. And so a younger person should be more heavily invested in equities than an older person on that account. But if you're in a cyclical job, say you're in the construction industry, you know, then or, or, or finance, then when you retire, you're losing a risky asset, possibly, with, if you're lucky, replacing it with a safe one, a defined benefit pension fund, uh, and so you should be able to take on more equity risk uh, uh, as you age. So the simple idea that older people should own fewer shares than younger ones is, I'm afraid, mistaken. And economists have known it's mistaken for some time. So why, why is there such a common misconception? Well, I, I think it's just one of those ideas that has just stayed with us. Um, in, in the face of contrary evidence. And another, another factor here is that a lot of quite old people, in fact, have very long-term time horizons, you know, because they're investing for, for, for their children, for their grandchildren. So for those people, you know, what matters is your grandchildren's time horizon, which is prodigiously long, not yours. Yeah, yeah. In one of your recent pieces, you refer to the error that growth investors often make of holding on to falling stocks for too long. Um, but investors also need to accept some volatility when or is it possible to know when holding on has becomes a mistake? 
we can't we can't tell for sure um but we have this old saying never try and catch a falling knife and that old selling saying is right because what we do know is that when an overvalued market falls it can fall a heck of a way you know we know this from japan in 1989 we know it from tech stocks in 2000 now you can very easily lose 60-70% in those sort of valuation-induced bear markets. And the grave danger there is that you see a small loss, you decide to hold on because you're still optimistic, and you end up holding on even throughout a long bear market. Investors do need an exit strategy. And one of those exit strategies is the 200-day or 10-month moving average. If you, if you sell when prices are below that average, you will, you will not always succeed because nothing's perfect. But what that rule does do is it protects us from really nasty bear markets. You know, it protected us from a lot of the tech crash of the early 2000s. It protected us from a lot of the financial crisis, 2007, 2008. And it's those big losses that really matter for us. We can cope with short-term blips of, of 4 or 5% losses here or there. What matters is that you avoid the disasters. And the 10-month rule in the past has done that, albeit at the expense of meaning that we miss out on buying on dips. Do you have any practical advice as to how people can track the 10-month moving average if they're not proficient enough on Excel to do it themselves? Well, I, I'm afraid I think I've misled people here in talking about the 10-month moving average, because um, what it is, in effect, is the 200-day moving average and there are loads of websites, including the ICs, um, that, that allow you to plot that um, very simply. The reason I call it the 10-month average is simply that I've always tested it on monthly data. And there is a reason not to pay too much attention to the daily data, because quite often um, a price will rise and fall above and below it's 200-day average for, for several days in a row, with the result that if you follow it slavishly, you'll be in and out of the market, trade, trading far too much. Um, I, I'd recommend that you look at it only, say, every, every month. And if, if prices are pretty close to its moving average, don't, 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 don't feel the need to, to, to change your behaviour for such small differences but it is something you, you, you've got to look at. You need some kind of exit strategy. You need some kind of discipline. I have actually been looking at it on, on, on a regular basis from, from when we last spoke. And the S&P 500 flitted, it's, it's around exactly at the 10-month the moving average now, and it was a little bit below um, a month or so ago. What are, what's your thoughts on... The 
valuations in in the US market and and whether people should be in or out there. The problem with talking about valuations in the US market is that, yeah, it looks as if stocks are still very highly valued. It looked as if they were highly valued a year ago, what two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, five years ago. If you were trading US stocks purely on valuations, you'd have gotten out six or seven years ago and missed out on a fantastic rally. That warns us to be cautious about US valuations um, and, and trading upon them. My concern is that there is a risk that we are going to see a repeat of the 2000 to 2003 experience when, when the NASDAQ fell by over, over 70%. Now, I can't quantify that risk. Now, I don't, I don't think anybody can. But we're faced with a small risk of something really, really unpleasant. And the solution to that is partly to be well diversified, both across equities, internationally, and in different asset classes, and also to have in mind that 10-month rule. It doesn't mean slavishly following it, but it does mean you have to face a time when you will want to lighten up your exposure. The, the, our, our problem here is what we do to manage the small risk of really nasty losses and how much you are trading off avoiding that small risk um, with pursuing uh, gains in the event that that risk doesn't materialise. There, there, there is, in this sense, a risk-return trade-off. Well, I'm really sorry. We are running out of time. Um, one more question. You are very sadly retiring soon, but you've kindly agreed to do another podcast where we will reflect on your long and distinguished career at the IC. But just just, just, fin- just to wrap this podcast up, what, what are the most remarkable papers that have guided your thinking? There's been quite a few. Um, when I started at the IC, I was a much bigger advocate of efficient market theory than I am now. And a couple of things that have made me weaken my faith in efficient market theory has been the research on momentum and defensive investing. Um, The one that really got me into momentum was a paper by uh, Narasimhan Jagadish and Sheridan Titman, which was back in in about 2000, where they showed that momentum worked in the US market. We've since had lots and lots of corroboration of that, not least my no-thought momentum portfolio. And there's also a body of evidence defensive investing works. Um, A chap called David Blitz has written on the volatility effect. But again, what matters in both these cases is not just that there's a single paper, but there's a body of evidence um, that shows that momentum investing works, defensive investing works, and those facts are robust to different measures of momentum and, and defensives. Now, and those are the two exceptions to efficient market theory that I think are really robust. 
people are always coming up with possible additions to that, but none of them are as convincing as those two. Great. Thank you. Well, it was an absolute joy as ever to have you on the podcast. Thank you for your time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.